Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and YouTube. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic, Gustav Mahler's musical New York. The Gilded Age was a golden age for creativity and classical music in the United States. Funded by the old and newly rich, performed and composed and conducted by German and German-trained Americans, high culture in the United States was both a luxury and a calling, a part of a project to uplift and ennoble a young, restless people undergoing rapid, rapid and unsettling change. But deeper questions remained. Can classical music ever be more than a European import? What does it mean for music to even be American? Indeed, is music purely universal or can it be national and diverse? And can there be such a thing as high culture for the people, or must it remain the purview of a small, educated elite? Into this fulcrum entered Gustav Mahler, one of the most celebrated composers of the turn of the 20th century, a transplant from Vienna to conduct one of America's largest symphonies in New York City. Mahler was a perpetual outsider to this story, but also a fascinating mirror image to Gilded Age American culture. With me to discuss this world and Mahler's place in it is Joseph Horowitz, prolific cultural author and historian of American classical music and author of, among others, Classical Music in America, A History of Its Rise and Fall, and the historical novel, The Marriage, The Mahlers in New York. Joseph, welcome. Well, that was a sterling introduction, Avi. I, I completely endorse your perspective. I, I noticed that you find more villains than heroes. Um, I probably find more heroes than villains for this particular period. And then I populate my story with more villains after the First World War. So speaking of heroes, uh, and I have indeed run across quite a few heroes in reading up on this period, and especially in your excellent histories thereof. Before we get into Mahler himself and the novel, why don't you paint a portrait uh, for our listeners? What was classical music? What did it mean? Who attended it? Who played it in the period between the end of the Civil War and Mahler's arrival in New York City. So uh, I'm probably unique in considering this the apex of classical music in America, certainly the 1880s and 1890s, to my way of thinking, are populated with heroes, the likes of which we don't find very often after the First World War. And this is a nascent period for classical music in America, so you wouldn't expect it to be the peak period, but for reasons that I've lamented for 50 years, it did turn out to be 
a period of high achievement compared to what came after. The two big heroes um, are names that should be better known, and they are Henry Higginson and Theodore Thomas. So briefly, Theodore Thomas is kind of the Johnny Appleseed guy. Uh, he's an itinerant conductor with an itinerant orchestra called the Thomas Orchestra. He created it all by himself. He's more or less a self-trained conductor, uh, German-born, but came to the United States at an early age. And the Thomas Orchestra is a world-class orchestra that tours because if it stayed in one place, he wouldn't be able to keep the musicians fully employed. But also, he's a man of high aspiration, and he takes this orchestra to pork sheds and churches, as well as to concert halls and opera houses everywhere, including the hinterlands, not just the big cities. So many Americans, we're talking about the 1860s to, say, 1891, when he takes over, he becomes the first music director of what's now the Chicago Symphony. But during these three decades, many Americans are introduced to classical music and symphonic music through this amazing traveling orchestra, the creation of a unique visionary. Had there been no Theodore Thomas, uh, things would have happened differently. Just as big a figure as Henry Higginson, this is the man who in invented the Boston Symphony in 1881. Uh, he was not a Boston Brahmin. He wasn't even born in Boston. As a music student in Vienna, he couldn't afford three meals a day. And his life's aspiration was to amass enough money to found and support a world-class orchestra for his city of residence, which was Boston. So when he founded, when he invented the Boston Symphony, there's no board. He pays the salaries of the musicians. He pays the music director. He chooses the music director. Indeed, he feared that when he died, the Boston Symphony would die with him, but it did not. It acquired a board of directors. And the template for the American Concert Orchestra is more or less born in Boston. The idea of an orchestra that performs symphonic concerts every week and uh, has its own hall, because Higginson built Symphony Hall, which exists to this day, is more an American idea than a European idea. In Europe, the central musical institution is the Opera House. And Thomas was... He preached this difference. He said his credo was a symphony orchestra shows the culture of a community, not opera. Why not opera for America? Well, there are two obvious reasons. One is that it's in a foreign language, and the other is it's tainted. It's theater. The theater is a place where there are, you know, prostitutes in the balconies. So the orchestra, the symphonic orchestra, the concert orchestra, seemed a more uplifting ideal for musical culture. Uh, many more things could be say about, said about these two individuals. They are heroic figures, and in many respects, they shape the musical culture of the late 19th century. Uh, I didn't mention so far that the distinguishing attribute of classical music in America during this period, and what sets it apart from what came after World War I, is the search for an American repertoire. Uh, nobody imagined that in the year 2023, American orchestras would mainly be playing European composers and that American opera companies would mainly be performing operas by Europeans. 
it was a foregone conclusion, or at least it seemed to be, that we would acquire our own cannon. And this was vigorously pursued. Um, a key figure here is Anthony de Borjac, the bohemian composer who was in New York from 1892 to 1895 and accepts as a mandate this quest for an American style. And I'll mention one other name, Anton Zeidel, who conducted the Met and the New York Philharmonic in the 80s and 90s, who's a protege of Wagner, but more important for this story, a great advocate for the American composer. And just to finish this paragraph, what I'm describing is all the things that Mahler was not. When Gustav Mahler came first to conduct the Metropolitan Opera and then to conduct the New York Philharmonic, we're talking about 1908 to 1911, he's really not interested in supporting an American canon or serving as a cultural leader for the United States. He's mainly a composer, a great composer, who's supporting his composing habit by earning a lot of money and then going back to Austria, to the mountains, and composing his next symphony. And when he was declared a failure, when his American career was called a failure, this is an informed judgment. It's not to say that Mahler was not a great conductor. He was or a great musician, he was. He just wasn't the right guy to run an American orchestra uh, in 1910, 1911, although, you know, one could extend that generalization to most conductors from that day forth. Uh, few and far between are the ones like Bernstein, who really took it upon themselves to promote American music. That's a great introduction. Uh, so let me dive right into that uh, last part about Mahler, because uh, having read the historical novel built on so many different sources and definitely paints an interesting picture of him, I really kept scratching my head. So let's go back to the beginning for our listeners. Who was Gustav Mahler uh, before he joined the Met uh, in the eyes of his audience? Uh, what was his musical approach? Uh, what was his place there? And more importantly, why did he even move to the United States? He sounded like a real man out of joint his entire time there. Well, Mahler was known as a conductor. Today we know Mahler as a composer, really one of the signature composers of his period, one of the greatest of all symphonic composers, Gustav Mahler. His music is played today all over the world, all the time. He's a phenomenally com popular composer. But he was ahead of his time as a composer, and so in his lifetime, he was mainly known as an important conductor. And he was conducting the most important cultural institution in Vienna, which was the court opera, what we now call the Vienna State Opera. He ran the house, every aspect of it, as a dictator. And this job was very taxing and very controversial, and he was getting tired of it around the time that this opportunity arose in the United States to do something that would be much less taxing and much more lucrative. So he came, he signed a contract with the Metropolitan Opera that would keep him in New York less than half the year so that he could go back to Austria and compose symphonies when he wasn't earning money in America. And his reputation preceded him as somebody 
who was a very demanding and wonderful conductor and a very strange composer. The reason he was considered a strange composer, um, I would say essentially, both in Vienna and New York, is that he would combine the quotidian, the everyday, the vernacular, the sounds of the street, the sounds of the band, uh, the sounds of people singing in in rural Austria with symphonic material. And nothing quite like that had ever happened before. Composers had always been influenced by popular sources. An obvious example is Schubert, who was in some ways a, a model for Mahler. But Mahler would juxtapose these elements in a way that was much more dramatic and controversial. Like, uh, say, in his Resurrection Symphony, at a certain moment, he has an offstage band playing in the style of a military band. Nobody had ever interpolated anything like that in a symphony before. And it was not well received for the most part. So that's kind of a snapshot of, of who he was uh, in the eyes of New Yorkers when he arrived in the city with his wife, Alma, a famous couple because he was much older than his wife. She was glamorous. He was not. And it was a tempestuous relationship. He was born Jewish. She had the reputation of being an anti-Semite. Um, and if you don't know about Alma Mahler, there's a famous song about her by Tom Lehrer, Alma Tellus, All Modern Women Are Jealous. What They were jealous of the fact that she would land these famous men as mates or husbands, one after another. The painter Oscar Kokoschka, the writer Franz Werfel, the art architect Walter Gropius, and others as well. Uh, they, uh, what's the metaphor of the, the uh, <laughs> I, they succumbed to her, uh, the fly in the ointment. Um, she was a, a man killer, and the, there she was incongruously, his wife and companion when they got off the boat in Manhattan. So that's Mahler, and he comes to America. And I thought I'd, uh, there are two main points you make, so I'd like to latch on to the first one. You mentioned how Mahler was revolutionary in how he included folk or popular tunes or sounds of the street and even allowed himself to play around with um, older music in a way that was uh, quite remarkable. And yet, in the, in the novel, you mention uh, uh, an interview he gave in which he basically poo-poos and downplays um, the efforts of people like Dvorak uh, to make use of popular tunes in the United States, uh, Black American tunes, uh, Native American tunes, uh, to create an American uh, rhythm. And you even have him having a conversation where he's like complaining that he might possibly have to leave New York City and go tour the boonies. That seems a strong contradiction to what you're telling me where he loved listening to things in rural Austria. Was this just his Austrian or German chauvinism showing? Uh, well, I was laughing the whole time you were asking this question. Yes, it's a perfectly obvious question. Mainly we're dealing with somebody who lives inside his head. And he's got a lot of tunes in his head. But many of them come from Iglau, where he was born in rural Bohemia. 
And uh, since he's obsessed with these things inside his head, he's not likely to listen very much to what's going on in, in the world that he's temporarily inhabiting. So he didn't really pay any attention to Native American music and culture or to African American music and culture, too busy with other things. And then lo and behold, a gentleman shows up and interviews him for a leading musical magazine. And this interview, it doesn't run until after he dies. And it is shocking because he talks about things he doesn't know. And it's his assumption that Native America and African Americans are not likely to supply any material that's suitable for symphonic treatment. So, so the, unpacking this, a lot of people would say that uh, about Native American music because it doesn't have any harmony and it uses a different scale. Uh, although there was a huge movement called the Indianist movement that, that more or less starts with Dvorak and a, a man named Arthur Farwell, which attempted to do just that, to take Native American music and ritual and use it in a string quartet or a song or um, but he really missed the boat when it came to African-American music because here's the mother load that the United States really squandered. I'm not talking about jazz. I'm talking about classical music. This is another one of my books called Dvorak's Prophecy. Dvorak, who's not Mahler, gets it immediately because he's an open-eared and open-minded person, also predisposed to the music of the people. And he instantly recognizes that the African-American spiritual is a goldmine for the composer. And he works that style into all of his American output, most notably or famously the New World Symphony, which has a slow movement that was actually turned into a spiritual going home. And um, it's very distressing to me that you had more Mahlers than Dvorak's that Sure, we've had composers like Aaron Copland who took an interest in black music, but really this is an opportunity that was crucially squandered after World War I by American composers. And African-American music fed ragtime and the blues, uh, all for many forms of popular music known the world over. It very little nurtured American classical music, the exception proving the rule being Mr. Gershwin, uh, who was an outcast in the classical music community, but who habituated Harlem and hung out with stride pianists and was himself a, a stride pianist. So Mahler is somebody who was famously tactless. And instead of shutting his mouth when he was asked these questions by the reporter from Etude magazine, he opened his mouth. So having opened his mouth, and uh, interesting that you mentioned Gershwin, because I was going to introduce my question with, and speaking of Jews, uh, Gustav Mahler himself famously was of Jewish descent, even though he converted to Catholicism. And as I read your book, uh, and I learn about this period, I see how the entire period, almost from the 1860s all the way into the First World War, and maybe beyond, is suffused by the influence of Richard, uh, Richard Wagner. Not just uh, his his specific operas, but the ways in which he encouraged uh, conductors to conduct uh, and to change things up. 
and Mahler was definitely uh, was of course not immune from that. But I have to wonder because Wagner, for whatever his incredible musical genius, was also an absolutely vicious, violent anti-Semite, even in the context of his time, and not just a vicious, violent anti-Semite in the context of his time, but famously absolutely contemptuous of the ability of anyone who was Jewish to actually create music. He basically called them parasites on actual musical traditions. How did Mahler, who very clearly wanted to be part uh, of the European tradition and especially the Viennese tradition, cope with that? Well, you're talking to a Wagnerite. I'm a lifelong Wagnerite. And I have a book on this topic uh, called Wagner Nights. It's about the Wagnerism movement in the United States which peaks in the 80s and the 90s with Anton Zeidel, who I mentioned earlier, and is not at all flavored, <clears throat> excuse me, by anti-Semitism. Uh, Mahler does not encounter anti-Semitism in New York. If anything, it's the opposite. You have philo-Semites like James Hunnaker and Henry Craybill, um, who Craybill uh, writes about Jewish music. Hunnaker actually called himself a philo-Semite. These are two of the most prominent musical jur- journalists in New York. Um, so Wagner's popularity uh, in the United States is, he's not popular because he doesn't like Jews. He's popular for other reasons. And uh, many, many other things can be said about this, and it's a topic unto itself. When one says that some of Wagner's best friends were Jews, that has to be taken very seriously. I mean, he, he, he collected Jews all his life. He fell in love with Jews. His closest friends were Jews. And to this day, Jews flock to Wagner. I'm a perfect example. A lot of Jewish conductors conduct Wagner. The most famous Wagner soprano at the Met, Lily Lehmann, was Jewish and actually was in some ways a surrogate daughter to Wagner. But Jews flock to Wagner because Wagner understands the outcast. And um, one of the most startling things Mahler ever said was that he would be the perfect singer for the role of Mime in Siegfried. And Mime is an evil dwarf, obviously modeled on the ghetto Jew. And uh, Mahler found this portrait to be very, very, um, I don't want to choose the wrong words, vivid in its details, and it's funny and pathetic. Uh, Mime is, is not a dark villain. He's more of a victim. Anyway, uh, I'll just add one more thought to this very complicated topic. Wagner was denounced by the anti-Semitic press in Vienna, and people complained that he was Jewish, and that his music sounded Jewish, and that the way he conducted the classical composers sounded Jewish. Uh, the same complaints are voiced in New York, but they're not linked to Jewishness. Uh, he's just found to be outside the tradition. And when people claim or claimed that Mahler wrote music that sounded Jewish, it's just a true statement. It doesn't mean that that's an anti-Semitic sentiment. It can be. And certainly there were very anti-Semitic music critics in Vienna. But you can call Mahler's Jewish 
music Jewish, or you can say that a given piece, uh, like the song Wenn mein Schatz Hochzeit macht, which sounds Yiddish, you can say a given piece of Mahler sounds Jewish without being anti-Semitic. So this opens a lot more questions than it answers, but you can uh, you can chew on that, Avi. Definitely a lot to chew on. Um, I thought I might uh, shift to another topic, which is some, also something you uh, cover a lot in your book, and that is the strained relationship between uh, Mahler, the composer, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Henry Krebiel, uh, the preeminent uh, German-American music critic in New York at the time. Uh, could you perhaps elaborate as to who Krebiel was and why it was that he and Mahler didn't hit it off? Yeah, this is a crucial uh, aspect of Mahler's New York career. <clears throat> Sorry. Henry Craybill, I think, is the most impressive music critic ever produced in the United States. He's an autodidact. His father was an immigrant uh, German uh, preacher. Uh, he was self-taught in music. And he got his hands on everything. He became the leading scholar, and that's not the wrong word, of race and music in the United States. He was what we would today call an ethnomusicologist. And in the columns of the New York Tribune, he would write 3,000 word essays on, you know, Pawnee music uh, or Russian music uh, or Jewish music. He adored all this music. And these were very serious undertakings he felt that music was ethnically based and enriched by its, its ethnic content. And uh, he also was somebody who remembered Dvorak and his New World Symphony as a peak moment, both personally and musically. He once told Dvorak that in a letter, Craville said that my, my dealings with you are I don't remember exactly how he put it, but the most fulfilling experience of my life, because he became kind of the publicist for the New World Symphony and was able to advocate for the New World Symphony with information that he received from the composer in the composer's own apartment in, in lower Manhattan. Um, so Craybill was looking for people like Dvorak and Zeidel. He was a close friend of Anton Zeidel, whom I mentioned before who would be cultural leaders. And this is a very, very understandable sentiment. Here you have a vibrant but young musical culture seeking its future as an American musical culture. And Craybill wants help. And here was Dvorak offering help. And here was Zeidel offering help. And here's Mahler not offering any help. Uh, he's not interested in the question, what is the future of American music? He doesn't investigate American music. And for Craybill, this is a, you know, a terrible disappointment that this famous, famous, famously gifted musician comes from Vienna and really doesn't care much about American music. So I'd like to end off a bit with uh, perhaps a bit of a, too much of a hypothetical, but I'll try anyway. Uh, you mentioned at the end about how, how, uh, Mahler's biographer, and it sounds like the biography he wrote was very long, um, 
thinks that perhaps if he, if if Mahler had stayed in the United States a little longer, he might have really developed uh, an affinity for the country. But the truth is, is that but Mahler died just before the breakpoint, uh, 1914, when Europe decided to let's be blunt, commit suicide, uh, and. And even in the United States, uh, when the when the when the U.S. joined the war, uh, anything even remotely sounding of German was taboo or driven out or fired or even interned. So realistically, even if he hadn't gotten that awful disease, and even if he had uh, remained alive to continue to compose, would he really have been able to stand against that sort of storm? Well, that's another excellent question without a simple answer. You know, Mahler was a genuinely great man. Uh, just because he wasn't suited to be music director of the New York Philharmonic doesn't mean that there's something terribly wrong with him as a person. And he's an endearing man because he's impulsive. And I think Delagrange, the biographer that you are alluding to, was completely correct. Mahler was a was an impulsive and erratic participant in the world around him. And I do agree that if he had spent more time in New York, he couldn't help but take an interest. And if he took an interest and something clicked, he would have taken a further interest. So if he hadn't died at the age of 50 in 1911, if he'd stuck around in New York, all other things being equal, which they were not, uh, yeah, I think he would have taken an interest in, say, the music of Charles Ives. Many people have speculated about that. But indeed, in 1914, something happens that would inevitably have impacted on Mahler's American career. He would have had to take sides. And he would not have chosen to stay in America. Uh, don't forget, he's mainly living in Austria even during the period that he's conducting in New York. So that's an accident of history that would foreclose this wonderful opportunity had Mahler not succumbed to a, a cardiac disease when he was 50 years old. So that's a, a great way to end off uh, on a fascinating period, a fascinating composer, uh, flawed, but flawed in many interesting and endearing ways, uh, as well as the people around him. And I uh, heartily recommend to my listeners to check out The Marriage, uh, The Mothers in New York. It's very interesting and a wonderful gateway to a world now lost. Joseph Horowitz, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and YouTube, and you can support the podcast on Patreon. See you all next time at Avi's Conversational Corner.